This is Expand the Zone, a Major League Baseball podcast brought to you by The Score. Let's just be above replacement level. I don't give a crap. Sign Bryce Harper! I want to see good players hit baseballs far and strike out. Oh my god, the size of that man. This is a tangent, but whatever. I can say in earnest that I I do think the end is near. What is going on, people? It is Wednesday, October 28th. I'm your host, Jonah Bierenbaum, joined remotely by my intrepid co-host, Michael Bradburn. That's me. On the docket today, we're going to recap the 2020 World Series. Before we get into that, a friendly reminder to download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. And if you dig Expand the Zone, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Well, sir... The craziest season in modern baseball history is over, and the Los Angeles Dodgers are champions once again at long last. On Tuesday night, the Dodgers captured their first World Series title since 1988, besting the Tampa Bay Rays 3-1 in Game 6 to take the series four games to two and exercise the demons that have tortured this organization for so long. And while nothing is ever inevitable in baseball... This Dodgers team winning the championship felt inevitable. We've been saying that since the day they acquired Mookie Betts back in February, and it only felt more inevitable as the truncated season wore on. They finished the year with a winning percentage north of 700, and through the first two rounds of the postseason, they looked every bit as indomitable as they did over the course of the 60-game campaign. They swept the Brewers in two games and the Padres in three games, and despite going down 3-1 to to the Atlanta Braves in the National League Championship Series, the Dodgers were simply too good to crap out like they have in so many Octobers past. And even in the World Series against the team with the second-best record in baseball— The Dodgers were the better team by a considerable margin. Their league-leading offense beat up on Tampa Bay's vaunted staff, bashing a dozen homers with an 819 OPS over their six games, and the Rays' highly fluid platoon-heavy lineup just had no answer for Clayton Kershaw, Walker Buehler, and Julio Urias, who combined to throw nearly half of Los Angeles' innings in the Fall Classic. And this is the culmination of a sustained period of greatness where the only thing that stopped the Dodgers from winning was the fact that they didn't win. Finally, after so many near misses and after eight consecutive National League West titles, the Dodgers are champions. And while the best team often isn't the last one standing in baseball, this year, the best team did win. Finally, they did it. Finally, they got that monkey off their back. And I'm not sure if some fans will put an asterisk on this or or something like that. But with the Dodgers, it feels like it's asterisk immune because they're just so good. And this has been coming for so long. And, you know, we can stop talking about the Dodgers becoming the baseball Buffalo Bills. We can stop talking about all these Clayton Kershaw narratives that he doesn't get it done in October. We can just finally... Stop discussing that Los Angeles chokes for some reason, because finally, they didn't. Not only do they not choke, at no point in this series, even after their calamitous collapse in Game 4, did it even feel like they weren't in control. At no point in the World Series did I really feel like Tampa Bay had a shot to win it, either. Like, that's how good they are. They were almost good to the point of it being boring because the outcome was so preordained. And I don't think it's revisionism to say that. 
No, I, I agree with you, to be honest. Game four will go down as one of the best playoff games I think I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And still, it's almost because, like, the Rays kind of lucked into a win. Like, the pair of errors to end a game. Like, when when have we ever seen the Dodgers do that? And part of it did feel like that was the Dodgers choking again in October. Like, we were going to get that narrative once again. But they won the very next game with Kershaw on the mound. And from there, it looked like this team is poised to end their 32-year drought. What a drought it was, too. I wasn't even alive when the Dodgers last won in 1988 and Kirk Gibson hit that impossible home run in the World Series. It's truly vexing how a team with this kind of financial might can go that long without winning one, even in a sport as random and cruel as baseball. Especially when they've been trying to win for so long, too. Like, I, I was looking at the last decade's win-loss numbers, and the Dodgers have won the most games since the beginning of 2010. They've been trying to do this for a very long time. The other best team, somewhat comically, has been the New York Yankees as well, who have been trying to win and haven't even made it to the World Series over that span. So it's really hard to win a championship in baseball because there's so many coin flips. Their recent futility in October just reinforces how you can build a juggernaut, but all that guarantees you is regular season success. It's kind of funny to me, in a way, that the season that they don't make many mid-season moves, and the big move they made was like acquiring Mookie Betts prior to the regular season, and then giving him a boatload of money. Like the one thing that the old Dodgers would have done, and that's what got them to the championship. So that's that's kind of fun to me. Yeah, there's like a strange dissonance to cheering for the best team cheering for a juggernaut, but this Dodgers team is eminently likable, and it was very difficult given the personalities they have on their roster and given their history not to pull for them in this World Series. For sure, yeah. Just, like, you don't want to see a team become a perennial choker in the playoffs, too. Like, that's extremely not fun, to me at least. I don't know. Maybe it is fun for other people. Maybe it's really, really fun for, like, Giants fans to to watch this Dodgers team do this. But to me, it's not a fun thing. I would like to see this team win. Uh, Usually I am rooting against the best team in baseball, though, because I like a punchy underdog. But in a way, like, the Dodgers almost made themselves underdogs because of, like, so many October failures. I wouldn't actually call them underdogs. That's not what I'm saying. However. Yes, their history did make it easier to doubt them, I suppose. When they lost game four, there was a part of me that was like, oh my God, the Rays are going to win the next two games. I I still didn't feel that way. Yeah. That's how much confidence I had in this team. That's good because you're smarter than me, but (laughs) there was definitely a part of my brain that went there. But every single time the Dodgers won, I went like, like Dodgers won game one. I went, oh, Dodgers in four. And then Dodgers won game three, and I went, oh, Dodgers in five. Like, the the Dodgers were so much better in the victories. And even in that game four loss, they were the better team. They just made two errors at the bad moment. Man, what a crazy game. Yeah, there there were so many layers of improbability to that game four finish. Kenley Jansen giving up a single in a one-two count with two outs to Brett Phillips who wasn't even included on the Rays' ALCS roster and hadn't gotten a base hit in a month. Like, that is just impossible to script. And that was followed by two unfathomable errors. One from Chris Taylor in center field, and he seldom plays center field. And another from Will Smith, who whiffed on the relay throw from Max Muncy, not realizing that Randy Arozarena 
representing the winning run, had tripped on his way home from third. It, there were so many things going on there that are just impossible to parse. How Kenley Jansen even threw an actual strike? After getting that charitable 1-1 call uh, on the outside corner, absolutely. There were two borderline strike calls in that at-bat, and the count was 1-2. and two. Put a ball in the dirt with Brett Phillips at the plate. You know he's like in emergency protect mode. You know this is his first ever World Series at bat. And how he even pitched to Randy Rosarena the the at bat before. Like, why are you making Kenley throw seven high intensity pitches to the best hitter on the planet when Brett Phillips is on the on deck circle? Walk him and go after Brett Phillips. What an insane sequence of events. Wild. Felt like there were six or seven lead changes in that game too. Gosh, what a great game. An instant classic and by far the the most entertaining game of this World Series. For sure, yeah. As you noted, the Dodgers being so good did lead to some snoozeworthy moments. Well, there's never a dull moment when Clayton Kershaw is on the mound, especially given his checkered history in October. And boy, did he ever step up uh, in the World Series and throughout the postseason. And while in some people's minds, he's forever going to be regarded as a October choker. He sure did chip away at that narrative over the course of the last month. In his five postseason starts, he put up a 2.93 ERA. The Dodgers won four of those five starts. And in the World Series specifically, he was nails. In Game 1, he looked every bit as brilliant as he ever has. He gave up one run over six innings, the lone run coming on a solo shot from Kevin Kiermaier, of all people. And then in Game 5, after the Dodgers dropped Game 4 in nightmarish fashion to even the series, Kershaw stepped up big. He did not have his best stuff. He did not have his best command, but he gutted through a very, very solid five and two-thirds innings, ended up giving up only two runs, and notably worked his way out of a first and third nobody-out jam in the fourth inning by inducing a pop-up off the bat of Joey Wendell, then striking out Willie Adamas on a masterful three-pitch sequence, and then nabbing Manny Margot at the plate trying to steal home. And the poise and the guile and the pitch ability that he demonstrated in that start when he didn't have his best stuff at his disposal was absolutely incredible. And he ultimately put up a World Series that should go a long way towards changing the perception of him. In his two starts, he put up an ERA of 2-3-1, and he won both of his starts. Never before, by the way, in his career had he won two games in the same postseason series. Now he's done it in the World Series. And he has checked that final box on his Hall of Fame resume, and I couldn't be happier for him. Agreed. It seemed like he felt that weight off his shoulders when he was talking about winning the World Series finally. Like, it really felt like this had bugged him for a long time. And it's just amazing that it no longer has to. It's so much more fun that the best pitcher of this entire generation finally gets his ring. And we get to celebrate him without some subscript that he doesn't get it done in October. Yeah, he's no longer the only three Cy Young Award winning pitcher without a World Series ring. He also took over the all-time strikeout lead among postseason players. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a record that Kershaw will hold for a good portion of time as well. The pitcher he passed to get there is Justin Verlander. And Verlander could, I guess, bounce back and make it back into the postseason and but it's not like Kershaw is going anywhere. He's probably going to be back in October next year, racking up more strikeouts. 
Exactly. That's the most amazing part of this Dodgers World Series, in my opinion, too. They could win the next three, and I would not be surprised. Yeah, it feels weird to say that this is the dawning of a new era for a franchise that has won eight consecutive division titles, but at the same time, this does feel like the first chapter of a new epoch in Dodgers history, where they just go on a ridiculous tear and win like three of the next six World Series titles. Yeah, and everybody almost immediately forgets that they ever choked in October mm-hmm. because they just become so dominant. Like, I'm I'm very interested to see how Kershaw performs going forward without this narrative haunting him and with Walker Bueller clearly as the, like, number one of this team as well. Like, I feel like he even thrives knowing that he can be a co-ace instead of having to carry the Dodgers by himself. Absolutely. And moving forward... It's very easy to envision Julio Urias being the number two on this team. The performance that he put on in the World Series and throughout the postseason was absolutely sublime. And while some of the luster has worn off for Urias, who's somehow already spent parts of five seasons in the big leagues and has vacillated between roles and hasn't yet established himself... He's still only just 24 years old, and it looks like he is an emergent ace. He was absolutely nails for them during the regular season, and like I said, positively incredible throughout the postseason, and the Dodgers have to be absolutely thrilled that they have him for another three seasons after this one. Yeah, it feels like we've been waiting for this for a long time as well. Like, Julio Urias made the majors as a 19-year-old, and pitchers who make the majors in their teenage years are like, as a rule, incredible. They go on to have incredible careers. So it feels like we've been waiting for this for a while. He's dealt with some injuries. And finally, now, he's like reaching what seems to be his peak. And he's still only 24. Mm -hmm. And just as he's deserving of credit, and so is Kershaw, and so are countless other players on the Dodgers roster, namely Corey Seager, who ended up taking home World Series MVP honors after previously earning National League Championship Series honors. I also think that Dave Roberts deserves some credit here too, and he was hardly perfect with his machinations throughout the series, but I do think he deserves recognition for deciding in the wake of Game 4 and another shaky outing from Kenley Jansen to staple his closer's butt to the bench for the remainder of the series. They had save situations in Game 5 and in Game 6, and Jansen was not considered, and I think that was absolutely the right call. It was a difficult call. Because Kenley Jansen is a fixture in this organization and has been such a big part of this team's success for so long, and I'm sure it would have meant the world to him to be getting the final out in Game 5 or Game 6 of the World Series, but he simply wasn't the best option at that point. He looked quite vulnerable throughout the postseason, and in the World Series, he gave up runs in both of his World Series appearances, and Roberts recognized that he was not giving them the best chance to lock down games. And again, that can't be an easy decision for a manager to make, but he made the tough decision and it worked out. Blake Trining got the job done in game five and then Julio Urias locked it down in game six. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, Roberts was not perfect. In in game four, I think he even admitted that he messed up with keeping Pedro Baez in the game after already telling the pitcher that he was done after that one mm-hmm. inning. But once they had retaken the lead, he wanted to go back to Baez for some reason. That was a weird call. 
But the very next game, in Game 5, the move that won me over for Roberts, to be honest, was when he removed Kershaw from the sixth inning. After Kershaw gave up two one-pitch outs to a Rosarena and Brandon Lau, it would be easy to be like, oh my god, my guy is cruising. I'm going to just stick with him, with Manny Margot coming up. Right-handed hitter, who has been better during the postseason against lefties. But he stuck with his game plan and summoned Dustin May from the bullpen, and it worked out. And I think a lot of people were upset at Roberts for yanking Kershaw in that moment, but that's the move that Roberts would have done in previous postseasons, in my opinion. He would have stuck with Kershaw, and seeing him not do that has been much better. Absolutely. Uh, However, it's not going to be the decisions that Roberts made tactically that get remembered. Rather, it's going to be one that Kevin Cash made in Game 6 with his club season on the line in the sixth inning with Blake Snell, the former American League Cy Young Award winner, in the middle of an absolute gem. Cash, with the left-hander having thrown only 73 pitches, having allowed only two hits, and still staked to a one nothing lead, decided to take out Blake Snell, who had been plainly overpowering, flummoxing the Dodgers hitters because leadoff hitter Mookie Betts was coming up to the plate for the third time in the game. And in lieu of letting his cruising ace face bets for a third time and navigate the Dodgers lineup for a third time, decided to go to his bullpen and their season promptly slipped away. Nick Anderson, who he brought in and who had allowed runs in each of his last six appearances, came on, promptly gave up a double to bets, then uncorked a wild pitch that allowed the game-tying run to score moments later on a grounder from Corey Seager. Betts motored home. The Dodgers had the lead. An hour later, they had snapped their drought, and that's going to go down as one of the most egregious tactical decisions in World Series history. And despite knowing how process-oriented the Rays are and how every decision they make is informed by data and rooted in analytics, this move still beggared belief. Blake Snell had superb command of all four of his pitches in Game 6 and was inducing just the most hideous swings from the best lineup in baseball. And yet, because Blake Snell, like most every other pitcher, isn't immune to the third time through the order penalty, Cash decided to take him out in a decision that typified the tension between the eye test and analytics. And while the Rays process and their slavish adherence to their data played an an integral role in getting them to the World Series, it's also impossible not to feel like that same process caused them to make an indefensible decision with their season on the line and evinced sort of an inattentional blindness that they are prone to because of the way that they operate. No one who was watching Blake Snell in Game 6 would have come to the conclusion that he had to be taken out. No one could have possibly thought that Nick Anderson was a better matchup against Mookie Betts in that situation than Blake Snell, who had struck Betts out in both of their previous plate appearances. And Betts, by the way, albeit over a small sample, struggled more against left-handed hitters in 2020 than he did against right-handed hitters. And... I'm not offering up some broad indictment of analytics. Analytics are eminently valuable. Data should be used to inform decisions. But at the same time, this kind of slavish adherence that defines the Rays costs them big 
in game six. And this is a decision that's going to haunt them and define them for a very, very long time. You leave Blake Snell out there, maybe they force a game seven. Maybe they win the World Series. I don't know. But in any event, I certainly didn't agree with the move, and I don't know anybody who did. Yeah, there's a lot to parse here. First of all, you brought up Mookie Betts. Uh, Even he, after the game, admitted like, wow, I'm glad they pulled Blake Snell. Of course, he didn't want to face the guy he'd already struck out against twice. Second of all, if I were to defend this move, it would have been to go to Pete Fairbanks out of the bullpen, who had clearly become the better fireman over the duration of the postseason. I know Nick Anderson was their guy during the regular season. Fairbanks had become next level in the postseason. So I don't know why Fairbanks wasn't the move there. Everybody was well-rested. And like you, I'm very pro-analytics. I think the Dodgers used analytics to remove Kershaw from Game 5. That's an analytical move. This was a World Series played by two of the most analytical teams in baseball. The better team won, and it just so happens that the team that like prides itself most on analytics made a bad analytical decision. Like It was a bad move, and... I support the decision to remove him from the Astros game, to be honest, from game six against the Astros in the ALCS. But this, it's not even close to the same thing. No, this is far more analogous to his decision from game seven of the ALCS when he took out Charlie Morton after 66 Mm. pitches and five and two-thirds scoreless innings. The important distinction is that in that case, it worked out and the Rays won. In this case, it blew up spectacularly in their face. And I don't think it's fair to pin this on Kevin Cash alone. He doesn't make these kinds of decisions in a vacuum. He is simply a cog in a machine that, since their inception, has been resolved to subvert and revolutionize the way that baseball is played. So I I think it's just important to note that. For sure. Like, I I don't know who is most to blame. Cash will obviously have to wear this. It's his decision to have been made or at least vetoed in, in his role. Like, he is the manager of the team. He can say no. This this is the, the first line in his obit now. Yeah. Unless the Rays win a World Series. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know. Like the Dodgers, like we were saying with the Dodgers, the Dodgers could go on a World Series tear where they win three of the next six, whatever. They could dominate for the next full decade. The Rays, I do not feel that confidence about. And it really did feel like this was Cash's kick at the can here. And he blew it. I mean, they didn't lose the World Series because of this decision. That's true. They were thoroughly outplayed by the Dodgers. And even if they win Game 6 by leaving in Blake Snell, there's no guarantee they win Game 7. But when you make such a controversial tactical move that just flies in the face of every baseball instinct, that will be the thing that you're defined by and remembered for. But yeah, coming back to your other point, who knows what's in store for the Rays moving forward. They simply operate in a different way from every other team. So while they seemingly have the makings of a competitive team for the foreseeable future, Blake Snell's still going to be around, Tyler Glasnow's still going to be around, Randy Rosarena is in it for the long haul, as is Brandon Lau. I'm always wary about making long-term projections for this organization who will trade away Tommy Pham on a whim and simply doesn't do business the way that other teams do. Yeah, they're ruthless. And and I expect that to continue this offseason. And honestly, part of me, 
even thinks we've seen Blake Snell's last pitch for the Rays, wow. to be honest. He's he's at like that peak of value that the Rays tend to deal players from. He's entering the portion of his contract extension where they actually have to pay him real money. He's owed $11 million next season. That only increases over the next two years. And yeah, I just, like Snell, I expect to be dealt. I kind of think Kevin Kiermeyer gets dealt too because they've probably been looking to deal him ever since they signed that extension. They'll find any takers for Kevin Kiermeyer. Yeah. Especially when some team can just go out and sign Jackie Bradley Jr. for pennies, given what this yeah, market is going to look like. Yeah, and there's really no difference between Kiermaier and Jackie Bradley Jr. They're both elite defensively who provide some value with the bat. Yeah, to get actually, JBJ was good this year offensively. Yeah, Far yeah better it was a great Kiermaier. platform year. The question is, who do they trade Randy Rosarena to? <laughs> his, still... his trade value is never going to be any higher. Yeah, he's still getting paid... League, league minimum, but yeah, the Rays love those guys. <laughs> but they also love arbitraging their players, and they'll never have a better opportunity to get more for Randy Rosarena after the postseason he just had. No way! After he wins uh, twenty twenty three AL MVP, they'll ship him for. You think he's still going to be with the Rays in twenty twenty three? Yes, that's the end of his pre arb years. Sorry. Let me rephrase. You think he's still going to be with the Nashville Rays in 2023? <laughs> yeah, well played. While we're on the topic of Randy Rosarena, too, I wanted to bring up whether we assign like any asterisks to his notable records set during this postseason because the postseason format did expand. There were more games this year, so he set the record for most hits and home runs in a single postseason. So I don't know. I'll, I'll get your thoughts first on whether Rosarena gets like some asterisk penalty. Not for me, no. There's no asterisk, literally or figuratively, next to the records that were set over 162-game seasons that displaced record holders who had set those benchmarks over 154-game seasons, and I think that same logic should apply. Context should always be noted. I think that's important, but I don't want to diminish what he accomplished by putting an asterisk next to his name or next to his feet. Yeah, I agree, 100%. Uh, And... In the end, they only played, like, maybe one more game than previous seasons anyways because the Rays swept the Blue Jays in the opening three-game series, and teams could still have played in the wildcard game before, so that's that's only a difference of one game. So I don't really get it, but I saw it floating out there, and I wanted to address it. Notably, Corey Seager also tied the previous record for home runs in a single postseason, but that will be at least slightly overshadowed by a Rosarena's run. Also, I'm taking full credit for Randy Rosarena. He rules, and I said it back in January, and I get some credit, all right? Full credit. You know what's absolutely ridiculous? Randy Rosarena could still win Rookie of the Year in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know if I like that. He should be exempted somehow. I don't know why. He's played 42 regular season games. (laughs) He doesn't even have 100 regular season plate appearances under his belt. Yeah. You, you simply can't overstate how incredible what he did this postseason was. And every time you thought you found one way to get a Rosarena out, he would pretty quickly adapt, too. Mm-hmm. Like, it was pretty remarkable seeing micro-adjustments during the literal postseason like that. He was absolutely hammering fastballs for the first three rounds of the postseason, so the Dodgers come out and start feeding him a steady diet of breaking balls, and he adjusts. His home run in Game 6 off Tony Gonsolin came off a slider. Slider off the plate against Clayton Kershaw, who threw him 
breaking balls in 3-0 counts, he was still getting base hits. It was insane. I'll be very interested to see if he can continue those adjustments over a full season. We're, we're presumably getting a full 162-game season, and, and that inevitably exposes weaknesses. But like he continues to show that he has this ability to adjust. And, and adjust against the best pitching staffs in the game, right? Make, making those stick. adjustments against the Dodgers and against, well, not so much Houston, but the Yankees, that's not easy. No, especially when like teams' bullpen strategies are being built around you, at least at the World Series stage. Like By the time he reached the World Series, the Dodgers were like, okay, we need to focus on getting the Randy kid out because everybody else is essentially an easy out at this point. God, the Rays were frustrating, man. <laughs> Anyways, that's not the point. The point is they were tailoring their like, freshest bullpen arm to come out and get a Rosarania in the most high leverage moments, and he was still getting base hits or working walks. He was crazy good. Mm-hmm. And uh, this being 2020, of course, we couldn't only talk about baseball in this episode. We also have to address the fact that Justin Turner, midway through game six, was removed because he had tested positive for COVID-19, and in spite of that, was still out on the field after the Dodgers clinched the World Series, celebrating with his teammates in a brazen disregard for the safety of those on the field and the protocols put in place. It sort of marred the celebration a bit. As much as I feel for him and as much as I know he is absolutely dying to be out there celebrating with his teammates... That was a pretty irresponsible move on, uh, on his part and on the part of the Dodgers. Yeah, I totally agree. And honestly, I, do, I don't want to talk about it because I want this to be a celebratory time for the Dodgers and whatnot. But Turner, in his selfishness, entered the field after testing positive for COVID. And it's an embarrassment to the league. It's an embarrassment to the Dodgers. It's just so unbelievably frustrating to me. And again, like you said, I get it. Justin Turner took a long, long path to get here. He was a late career bloomer, DFA'd by the Mets. Guys like that usually don't come back, let alone have a career that Justin Turner has had. This will likely be his only World Series. I get wanting to be with your teammates. I do. But still, you've got to be able to show some restraint. Yeah, and it's not like it was only his teammates who were out there on that field after the game. There was MLB personnel, there were families out there, and... It was just not a a, a good note to finish the season on. But they did finish the season, which is pretty unbelievable, honestly, considering how it started. Yeah, man, I got to say, I'm I'm, uh, quite proud of us doing an entire season working from home. Yeah. Uh, So I guess uh, the off-season is underway. We're officially in the off-season. Yeah. Are you an off-season guy? I love me some transactions. Some people really like it. I, I don't think I like it at all. I've learned this about myself over the years now. As soon as the baseball stops, everything sucks. November is by far the worst month on the calendar. You cannot convince me otherwise. I I don't know. I I don't care for it. Yeah, I mean, I I am curious to see how this offseason unfolds because like the season that preceded it, it's going to be strange and and unpredictable. I frankly am quite apprehensive about what the free agent market is going to look like and how much cash is going to be available for free agents in the wake of reduced revenues and in the wake of teams uh, accruing an unprecedented amount of debt this year. I wonder if there's going to be a disproportionate number of players taking pillow contracts, even high-level players. But I don't know. I, I, it, it is truly impossible to predict what's going to unfold. But we'll save those discussions for another day. 
Today, we're celebrating the Los Angeles Dodgers, who, 32 years after last hoisting the Commissioner's Trophy, are champions once again, and congratulations to them. And on that note, I think that'll about do it for today's episode of Expand the Zone. Once more, before we sign off, a friendly reminder to download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. And if you dig the podcast, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. That's Michael. I'm Jonah. Thanks for tagging along for this wacky, bizarre 2020 season. And we'll see you next time on Expand the Zone.